This is Reconsidering, a podcast about life and how to live it better. In sports, the coach plays the important role of guiding players and delivering the feedback that they need to operate at their best. But in our professional lives, we almost never have the guidance and support of a coach, which makes it really challenging to reach our full potential. And at times, it leaves us trapped in negative behavior cycles. Ed Batista has spent years coaching senior leaders who face a series of challenges where they're just seeking greater fulfillment in their role. He's distilled decades of guidance into a self-coaching course at Stanford, as well as a book entitled The Art of Self-Coaching. In our conversation with Ed, he unpacks the self-coaching methodology and how to shift our aggressive, self-interested warrior approach to work to that of a humble, curious sage. I'm Aaron Walter. I'm Meredith Black. I'm Bob Baxley. And we'll be right back with Ed Batista. Hey, Aaron Walter here. Bob, Meredith, and I are so excited by the reception that Reconsidering has received from listeners. Turns out people are really enjoying the show. We're working really hard to bring you conversations from best-selling authors and deep thinkers who have insights that can help you find satisfaction in your work and your life. If you found the show meaningful and useful, we have a small ask. We hope that you can help us grow the community by just leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Yes, they now have podcast reviews too. Wherever you listen, just search for Reconsidering in the podcast directory and leave us a quick review. This will help others find the show. It's also really helpful for Bob and Meredith and me to get your feedback as it'll help us refine the show. Our sincere, deepest thanks in advance for your support. Now, let's get back to the show. My name is Ed Batista. I'm an executive coach. I've been coaching full-time since 2006. My wife and I lived in San Francisco for 30 years. And in 2020, as a consequence of the pandemic, we left San Francisco and moved up to a farm about 40 miles northwest of the city. My practice, which in the past was concentrated in San Francisco's financial district, is now entirely virtual. So I spend all day here in this room that you can see doing just what we're doing now. I you know, spend all day, every day talking with leaders about the challenges that they're facing. So, Ed, we like to start the show with something we call the lightning round. Mm-hmm. Ready to play? Ready. Here we go. Inside or outside? Inside. Backpack or suitcase? Backpack. Planned or spontaneous? Planned. Inspiration or persistence? Persistence. Reading or writing? I can't separate the two. Teaching or learning? Learning. Coaching or mentor? Coaching. Warrior or sage? (laughs) Very (laughs) timely. (laughs) Ex-warrior, aspiring sage. (laughs) Nice. Carl Jung or Sigmund Freud? Oh, Jung, for sure. React or respond? Respond. Poetry or prose? Prose. All right, that's it. Thank you. Okay, I have a I have a maybe right off the bat hard question for you. Okay. Self-coaching seems to be for people who are self-aware. They know they need it. They know, you know, it's good for them. 
How do we encourage folks to get coaching help or learn how to self-coach when we know they need it, but they don't know they need it? Yeah, that's a great (laughs) question. My additional response is, you know, help is helpful when it's asked for. We reliably have a habit of inflicting help on people when they have not asked for it. Whatever our hopes and aspirations are for them, you know, I think we need to be very, very cautious about saying, I am here to help you. And I know just the way, I mean, you know, if we look back at the history of executive coaching, you know, when I started, it was really emerging from an era where coaching was really viewed as like a kind of a last stop for underperformers. Someone is failing and, or, you know, having difficulties and, and we may need to manage them out and coaching will be kind of like a, we did the best we could. The profession has grown and changed quite a bit. It's very rare just over the course of my time in the field that I've taken on an engagement like that. Increasingly, it's simply like, Hey, somebody is self-aware to your point, Meredith, that they realize, Oh, I could, you know, benefit from some support like this. That doesn't mean that we're incapable of reaching out to somebody and offering them some encouragement. My first exposure to coaching came as a client. I'd gone to business school because my passion at that time was helping the nonprofit sector and NGOs use technology more effectively because that was a world in which you weren't particularly incentivized to innovate with technology. And I thought, hey, there's a real opportunity for these organizations to do their work more effectively. And I came out of business school and landed my dream job doing just that. And I had a guy who became a mentor on my board of directors. And in a very supportive way, he basically took me aside and said, you're a talented guy and you have some rough edges. And I encourage you to get a coach, invest in yourself. You know, he highlighted like, hey, there's some consequences here because I was so passionate about the mission was winding up in conflicts with my board. And I thought it was my job as a leader to kind of come up with the best ideas and champion them very aggressively. You know, I had a certain view of leadership that was leading me into these conflicts. And I had a professor at business school, a wonderful woman named Marianne Huckabay, who I knew had a coaching practice on the side. I went back to her and I said, would you take me on as a client? And she said, yeah, sure. So we worked together for a couple of years. It enabled me to turn that leadership experience into a success really transform my vision of leadership. And then fast forward a few years when my coaching practice started to become more complex and I realized, ooh, I'm not going to be able to do my best work. In 2009, I reached back out to Marianne. I said, would you be, you know, become my coach again? And she is still my coach today. I've worked with her you know, over the last, I guess, 12, 13 years. So I think it's eminently possible to encourage someone to pursue coaching. And it's, I think, it really incumbent on us to do so in a way that they perceive as supportive and not punitive. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you think about coaching and how you might define that separate from mentoring and therapy. You know, in my profession, I'm a, a UI designer, and a lot of people are sort of burning out or aging out of the industry, and they're hanging up a shingle that says, hey, I'm a coach. And I'm like, well, like, are you really? What does that really mean? Sure. Well, I think a starting point in the problem there is, like, what does coach mean? You know, we have so many fundamentally different definitions of coach in English. And our most common association is actually with, like, these very, you know, sort of dominant figures, you know, the football coach or, you know, someone like that, which is very much not what we mean, at least in the context of my world, of executive coaching. It's not a great label for the work that I do. But I'm stuck with it. So, I, you know, I do identify as a coach very much while running into, you know, precisely, Bob, the problem that you raise. A simple distinction with mentoring is that mentoring is much more reliant on here's what I've done. Here's my expertise. Let me guide you. Let me instruct you. My expertise is really in building a relationship in which I earn the right to ask the most important questions, which, which certainly entails, a, you know, both a degree of trust, 
and an intuitive sense of what those most important questions are, which may, you know, certainly evoke some vulnerability. You know, I really want to emphasize my, my area of expertise, which is building that relationship as opposed to my ignorance. I mean, no matter how long I work with someone relative to the profession at large, I work with people for pretty long times, pretty long engagements, but no matter how long I work with someone, I'm only going to know a small fraction about their reality. I'm going to know so little about who they are as an individual, what makes them tick, their landscape, the people that populate it. And so I don't want to just dispense advice because I'm presuming that I've seen this movie before and I know how it ends. I'm also really careful. I mean, because most of my clients are founder CEOs, there are certainly themes that emerge. It would not be doing my client a service to say, well, I'm going to be rigidly, you know, adherent to coaching as a methodology. I'm only going to ask questions. No, I certainly do offer advice and I'm careful to be explicit to say, hey, this is some advice. You know, it's based on educated opinion, some work I've done with other clients, some research I'm aware of and take it with a grain of salt. So um, I try to be very circumspect about any advice I do offer. But you mentioned also therapy. And I want to just say, I think here it's really important for me to understand what are my limitations as a coach and what are limitations of coaching as an intervention, as a source of support, and to be aware of that boundary. And yet not to draw that boundary so broadly that we leave important work on the table. Really common example of that is anxiety. We're a fundamentally anxious species. It's part of our evolutionary heritage. You know, it's a really common state and it's particularly common for entrepreneurs to feel some anxiety. Oh gosh, the weight of this venture is resting on my shoulders. People's careers are dependent on me. I have to make payroll and so forth. And so, you know, a lot of my clients, you know, feel some heightened anxiety at times. However, that can cross a threshold if it is persistent over an extended period of time, if it affects multiple domains of life, if it's, you know, conjoined with other symptoms, especially any kind of, you know, physiological response. That's clinical anxiety, which I am not in any way, shape or form here to help someone address. So I've got several specifically with regard to anxiety, several therapists, you know, I regularly refer people to to say, hey, there are some limitations on the kind of support that I can provide as a coach. And I would encourage you to get some additional support from this helping professional. And that doesn't prove us from talking about anxiety just in the context of our regular work together. So it's really important to be aware of that boundary and not draw it too broadly. So if we push on the self-coaching thing for a little bit, because a lot of what you described with coaching was relationships and trust and asking the hard questions and stuff, but that seems to kind of stand in contrast to self-coaching. And so I was wondering if you could maybe walk us through a little bit kind of the mechanics of self-coaching. Is it about a mindset shift? Is it a particular tools? Like just mechanically what happens there? Well, I think it goes back actually to this idea that self-coaching is social. It's a self-directed process, but it is not a solitary one. So for example, in the class, I taught it virtually the last two years. In spring of 2020, I feel like we all sort of rallied and had a a really good virtual experience. Spring of 21 uh, was really a struggle. I had a very difficult time. I'm still learning as to how well that translates online. But in the course of teaching the class, I would let folks know, look, the solitary reflection that you'll be doing, because I'm providing a syllabus here, a set of readings that I think are relevant to the topics that we'll be tackling in sequence over the course of the quarter. And I want you to digest them and do some writing that will help kind of render your thoughts a bit more concrete. That's all necessary and insufficient. The work that we'll do in the classroom is going to be extremely interactive. You're going to be involved in coaching conversations and other kinds of interactions in every class session. And so that's also 
very consistent with how I you know, talk about this with clients. I encourage my clients to do a lot of reading while recognizing there are limits on what they're going to be able to digest. I encourage clients to do some you know, journaling and reflection while also recognizing that you know, there's, a, there's a lot of research, uh, the value of journaling. Very few people do it. It's the kind of thing that is a bit of an uphill climb for a lot of people. And I encourage clients to have lots of conversations like the conversations they have with me. One of the things I talk about in my very first conversation with a client is confidentiality. I tell them, look, this is a confidential relationship. I'm not going to disclose your identity as a client or share any details about our work together. And that's a one-way street. I actively encourage you to talk about everything that we're talking about with people that you trust, because you're going to get a lot more out of our conversations, the more that you can invite other people into that dialogue. Now, other people aren't necessarily going to be as available or as capable, but first you can start the conversation. It's connected to this idea that by learning to have more effective conversations that employ coaching as a methodology, you're not reliant solely on a relationship with a professional coach. Your coach is not necessarily going to be readily available or as available as peers or family members or colleagues or other people with whom you could engage in a coaching conversation. And so part of what I address in the class is a sort of baseline familiarity with some coaching skills, you know, just the ability to sort of slow down that impulse to offer advice, the ability to be a more effective listener, the ability to truly empathize with the other person and convey that empathy. That's not rocket science and coaching isn't rocket science. And if you can start to bring those kinds of skills into these other relationships in your life, you're going to be able to get a lot more out of your work with a professional coach. Obviously, I believe deeply in the value of working with a professional coach, not only because I am one, but because I have been a coaching client for two decades. And by no means am I the only person who should be able to provide that kind of support in my clients' lives. So how do you encourage yourself to keep going if you're self-coaching? Like, if you're self-coaching, what are some of the ways that you could motivate yourself to kind of be like, okay, my next steps are this? It's hard, right? It's hard to reflect on yourself. It's hard to encourage yourself to keep going. So like, do you have any tips or tricks of how to encourage people to keep going and stay motivated with this journey? Sure. Well, I think it actually comes back to the same point, the idea that this should be social. I mean, I'm playing with language a little bit here, but even calling it self-coaching, you know, I think it's a little bit of a head fake. And I don't want people to get hung up on this idea like, oh, I'm going to read these materials or absorb this methodology. And then on my own, I'm going to come up with the right idea. We want that to be true because we don't want to be vulnerable. We don't want to reveal our messiness or our problems or our challenges. So we desperately want self-coaching to be a solitary activity. And yet there are a lot of reasons why the interactive dimension to this is so important. Starting with all of this involves a host of feelings, right? You know, uncomfortable feelings, I'm mad or disappointed or frustrated. And a lot of interesting research on the ability to regulate those emotions really rests on interpersonal connection. When we're talking with somebody about negative feelings that we want to discharge, it's so much more efficient to be in active dialogue. It can help to sort of stop and take a deep breath and maybe do some writing or journaling or go for a walk around the block. It's not nearly as effective. We need to be in an active dialogue with somebody to get that process working much more efficiently. Also, a lot of what I talk about with clients in this domain entails some kind of habit formation. You know, I mean, everybody that I work with is keenly aware I should be getting more physical exercise. I should probably be engaged in some kind of mindfulness routine. I should be getting more regular sleep. Everybody knows that. Very few of us actually follow through on that. And here too, it would feel so great if we could just sort of come up with the right answer, reflect deeply on it and follow through. 
and yet we fail to. And here, having another person involved in the process as an accountability partner is really important. I can play that role with my clients. They're not accountable to me, but I can help them remain accountable to themselves. But that's also kind of inefficient, just relying on me. So to be able to enlist other people in their lives as partners in this process, even if it's just saying, hey, I'm making this commitment to myself, can you help me follow through on it? There is certainly a core of initiative that's got to come from the person. Like, you know, again, we reliably inflict help on people, you know, when that is not what they've signed up for. But if we are able to initiate some process of personal growth and development or making some kind of change in our lives, we absolutely need to begin enlisting other people as allies in that process. And a professional coach can play a role in it, but by no means, you know, should we feel limited to a professional coach being the only person. We should also be really judicious though about who do we invite into this process and how. You know, a big theme in my practice is that people have, they've got a lot of willing partners who really just want to give advice. And they often experience that as counterproductive. You know, like, thank you. I appreciate your interest in helping me, but your advice is actually not that helpful. So helping folks navigate those relationships, especially because like, hey, the person who wants to give me advice probably cares about me. They're invested in the relationship and my success, but I'm actually finding their advice counterproductive and unhelpful. So can I stay in a dialogue with them? Can I stay in relationship with them, but just shift the nature of how we're working? Even if it's just to say, I'd like your advice, but after 15 minutes, like give me 15 minutes to just kind of talk through and maybe, you know, ask me some questions, give me some prompts. And then 15 minutes from now, you can give me your advice. You know, journaling is a theme that has popped up a lot in our conversations on this show. And both Bob and Meredith and I have all built practices, our personal practice of journaling. But I have to confess that although I've got the practice of journaling, I often feel like my getting value out of it. I wondered if you could just like speak to us and listeners as if we're total novices, we've never journaled before. What does that practice look like? What types of things are we journaling about? Are we rereading that? How are we using it to reflect and grow? Yeah, great question. And I think it's extremely subjective. And one of the reasons why people reliably fail to persist with a journaling practice, even though there's ample research that indicates that it's beneficial, is we feel we have to do it in a particular way. Typically, for many people, it conjures up the idea of a middle school diary. I am going to keep track of everything that happened in my life today. Today at lunch, I sat next to, and then afterwards we did this, and then I went home. I mean, you know, who's got the time? It's really quite useless. But we feel kind of constrained by that as a a model. So I really encourage first just recognizing, oh, I'm bringing a set of assumptions about what this is supposed to look like. So those assumptions may not serve us. And in fact, many of the assumptions that we bring to the process do not serve us. So let's just recognize them and set them aside. Don't do it the way we think we're supposed to do it. Do it the way that feels useful, which also means doing some active experimenting. It also means remaining attuned to the concern that you just raised, Aaron, which is this idea that it may begin to lose its savor. None of these practices are intended to last indefinitely. There's a specific form of journaling that's gotten a lot of publicity in recent years, uh, gratitude journaling. You know, at the end of the day, I'm going to write down some things that I am grateful for, and that's going to make me feel better. And, you know, it often does, but not forever. If your gratitude journal starts to feel like an onerous burden, stop. Stop journaling, you know? And I think there's a balance here, which doesn't mean, oh, let's just give up anytime we meet with some resistance or practice begins to feel a little challenging. But don't assume that 
committing to a practice like this means that we have to keep up some kind of perfect attendance record. I've got to do it every day for 10 years. No, I think first just holding it lightly and saying, okay, let me, let me create an MVP, you know, minimum viable product version of a journal and see if I'm getting some value out of the very most basic kind of construct. And if I'm not, let it go. You know, I talk a lot about meditation, both in my class and with clients, and not because I'm an expert on meditation, but I am something of an expert in beginning meditation because I have begun and stopped and started many times over the course of my life and career. And I've also worked with a lot of people who've come into their work with me with an interest in meditation. And I'm not here to say, hey, this is the right way to meditate, or this is a particular practice you should follow. But again, there's tons of research for most people. The benefit of a regular mindfulness practice and meditation can be a particularly economical form of that. And it ain't for everybody. You know, this idea that everybody should be meditating is ridiculous. Of course not. But I do encourage people to give it a try, especially knowing that even more so than journaling, it will feel onerous. It will feel mildly stressful. You will feel like a bad meditator. You will want to give up. That's actually part of the process. It's like any workout. You know, it's going to feel a little stressful at first. Now, I want to push on this just a little bit here, Ed, because the idea that, you know, journaling, that you start gratitude journaling, and then maybe that's not working for you. And so you give up journaling as a concept. It just doesn't sit quite right with me. I think we could all kind of name the five or six practices that Brad Stolberg talked about in the practice of groundedness. I mean, they're, as I sort of say, these things are well known. The human animal is well understood. It's just a matter of us doing the work. And so exercise, meditation, and journaling, if we talk about those for a second, meditation is a pathway to mindfulness and, and being present in the moment. Journaling is a, a way of being reflective and sort of processing your experiences. And exercise, of course, is a way to reconnect with your body. And I, I wonder if you have some thoughts about, like, we know that human well-being, emotional well-being relies on you having some sort of practice with those goals in mind, if you will. And maybe journaling is not the exact right method to get to reflection. It does feel to me like you need some sort of a mindfulness practice and some sort of a reflection practice and some sort of a movement practice. And maybe the trick is just in the same way that you know over the course of your life, you're going to switch different exercises. Maybe you're a runner and then you become a biker and then you get into yoga or something like that. Maybe you go from gratitude journaling to something else. I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Well, I think you're absolutely right. There are a host of practices that we know are generally beneficial for most people. And some of them are going to feel kind of onerous or unpleasant. You know, journaling is not necessarily always going to feel easy or something we're drawn to do. Meditation will absolutely not feel like we're drawn to it for most people. And it's in fact, the difficulty in the process that potentially makes it useful. But the dilemma that I see, particularly with my clients, really highly motivated, successful people with the MBA students that I've worked with at Stanford, also you know, really highly motivated and very driven people, is that what they can do is create a pretty rigid set of rules for themselves. I know I'm supposed to get eight hours of sleep and work out every day and finish my gratitude journal and meditate for, you know, et cetera. And people like that are pretty good at following a set of rules for a period of time. And inevitably, that starts to chafe. And then the whole construct breaks down. People will follow a set of rules for a period of time until they say, fuck it, you're not the boss of me. Even if you created the rules, I'm sick of it. And so my interest is in first helping folks recognize their individual differentiation and never take, quote, the research as a given that applies to them. The research is always about that mythical figure, the average person in the sample. 
none of us corresponds to the average person in the sample. We're just different. And I think if we fail to acknowledge that and say, well, I should be doing this because the research says that, well, number one, that might not be true for you as an individual. Number two, even if it is, if you kind of constrain yourself into this ironclad set of rules, reliably, you will eventually rebel against them even if you've been the person imposing them on yourself. And I've seen that happen over and over again. So to me, the key is creating a flexible system that actually presumes failure. It's also another reason why I really, I am very skeptical about anything that involves streaks. If the motivation is, I'm going to have a perfect attendance streak, I'm going to meditate for a thousand days straight. Well, okay, maybe. And maybe that's motivational in getting the process up and running. But inevitably, again, because we're human, like those streaks end. And if you're really attached to a perfect attendance streak, then when it ends, you can be quite demotivated, sometimes to the point where you're like, ah, screw it, I'm never going back. So my interest is creating a set of failure tolerance systems that bake in the idea that we're all different individuals and we're also mortals who are prone to failure. So Ed, these practices are really helpful tools for growth, but also important is just our mindset and the way that we see the world and, and the way that we reflect on who we are. Your blog, which is full of lots of great stuff, and we'll link it up in the show notes, edbatista.com. There's a really lovely post about this idea of a warrior mentality and a sage mentality. Could you walk us through how those two are different? Personally, this is, it was as if you wrote it for me. It definitely resonated with my experience. Oh, great. I appreciate that. I'm glad it, I'm very glad it resonated with you. It, It grew out of my work with a lot of clients, as well as some of my own experience. And so I'm drawing loosely on the work of Carl Jung, who basically you know, suggested that there is a collective unconscious that is sort of formed of these archetypes. This sort of set of experiences that we've had as a species have bequeathed us a kind of psychological inheritance, a set of ways of seeing the world and responding to particular situations. One aspect of that are archetypal figures and some evidence for Jung's idea. And note, this sounds a little woo-woo, sounds a little out there. And Jung was definitely a little out there, but he was extremely interested in spirituality and mysticism in all forms. But we don't have to view this as you know something that requires a leap of faith that isn't grounded in modern science. By no means is this at odds with modern science. There's actually a lot of evidence that a number of the emotional experiences that we have are a function of this process of evolutionary psychological development. So this idea that there are these archetypal figures that we actually see repeated in cultures from all over the world and at all points in time suggests that they have some collective relevance. And two that show up repeatedly in my practice are the warrior and the sage. You know, I mean, I can say warrior and all, of course, all of these you know, historical images, these warrior figures from, you know, myth and legend come to mind. Well, there's a, there's a reason why that serves us. And, and the way I see that in so many of my clients is, you know, they've had training as a warrior, training in this process of like overcoming resistance, facing the world, fighting battles, winning, and that has served them really well. In a very particular version of that, there's the, you know, the founder entrepreneur who's, you know, fighting this battle and, you know, fighting to get credibility for their idea, fighting to win funding, fighting to convince people that it's actually going to happen, that it's not just some pipe dream. And so there's a, a really, you know, tremendous emphasis in their environment on the need to face up to and overcome and overpower resistance. And that's great. It's necessary. But what I've seen is that as time goes on, it becomes less useful. 
the presumption that one's going to be met with resistance that has to be overpowered, that becomes, number one, less true as you get more senior and more successful. And it also can easily alienate people who you might be trying to recruit as allies, whether they're partners or employees or investors. It's a very, sometimes a very zero-sum way of approaching the world, which sometimes is very important but not all the time. And if that's the only way you see the world, then you're just the proverbial hammer looking for nails. And an alternative archetypal figure that appears again and again in cultures around the world and from throughout history is the sage. I like that word in particular because it's not just about teaching. It's really also about living by right principles and by guiding others in the process of of living that way. I counterpose these two in part because I find that there's an evolution that's necessary, which doesn't mean a kind of like graduation from the sort of warrior mindset. I mean, the warrior mindset remains very useful to us no matter where we are and at what stage in life. At some point, you know, we're going to get drawn into a fight and we better know how to handle ourselves. And if we approach every interaction as if it's a fight, well, that gets really hard. And so what I've found is first being able to identify, oh, right, I'm stuck in this warrior mindset is a way of recognizing that it might not be serving me at all times and that there are other mindsets, there are other ways to approach it. I emphasize the sage simply because I find that as my clients' organizations grow, as they become more successful, as they start to attract more senior talent and are able to lead and manage more senior executives, you know, it's less about fighting and it's more about guiding and even coaching. Also just say, personally, I've recognize that my own orientation toward the world was very much as a warrior. I'm going to fight and overcome resistance. And as I've gotten older, I've just realized how utterly futile that is. I turned 55 pretty soon and I feel it, you know, and I realize that, you know, whatever efforts I've been made to try to fight the world, like I'm, I'm an old guy. That's not gonna, that's not gonna get me very far anymore. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that this idea of the warrior versus the sage also applies not just to work life, but also personal life and how we approach relationships. We're not trying to get something from someone. We're not trying to always be right. We're not trying to promote our egotistical view of the world. We're sort of participants and co-equals. Yeah, you bet. Which also very connected. I mean, you know, as a warrior, of course, we're fueled by emotion, a sense of the rightness of our cause and the passion that we can inspire in ourselves and others. And, And we should be able to do that. However, let's always remind ourselves that emotions are data which means there's signal and noise. And especially a lot of the powerful emotions that warriors feel in themselves and inspire in others, there's a lot of noise there. Even just the idea that this is a battle that I must win. I mean, there are plenty of circumstances in life, and I find that in my own life, especially the older I get, the more I realize that that's an illusion. It's not a battle, and I don't have to win. And so the ability to step outside what I'm feeling in the moment and kind of hold those feelings at some distance to be able to observe them and to say, well, what is the signal here? And what is the noise? I feel like that's a bit of a sage mindset that I get to inhabit every once in a while. I don't live there for sure. I am as prone to the kind of misguided warrior thinking as anybody, but it's useful to just recognize that, oh, right, the sense I have, the rightness of what I'm thinking and feeling could be wrong. I've worked with a bunch of different coaches over the years, and I have many of them as friends. And the way that I can really tell somebody who's a true coach is they have a little nugget of wisdom that they drop in almost a throwaway line because they use it all the time. And when they say it, you just said it, emotions are data, which means they have both signal and noise. And you just dropped it like that, like it's just common knowledge. And the rest (laughs) of us are like, wait a moment, that was like some magical moment from Yoda. I should hold on to that. (laughs) You know, (laughs) 
And every coach I know, they have like a handful of those. I'm glad that resonated. And definitely a theme in my practice is the importance of emotions and the ways in which that we need to pay attention to them and also prevent them from allowing us to draw us off course. It kind of leads us to talking about regulating emotion. And you write this essay called The Tyranny of Feelings. How should we think about emotion in our professional lives? Should we bring our whole self to work as it's the popular viewpoint today? Or should we get better at regulating emotion and only bringing like part of ourselves to work? Yeah, such a great set of questions and so important and so relevant to my practice. For me, the starting point of really kind of understanding emotion much more thoroughly was in the work of a neuroscientist man named Antonio Damasio. He was originally from Portugal, then he was at the University of Iowa for many years, and he's been at the University of Southern California for some decades. And, you know, he's really a pivotal figure, and he's by no means an isolated voice. You know, he's really speaking for the kind of consensus in neuroscience research these days. But he's helped us understand, he was kind of a pioneer researcher, helped us understand the truly significant role that emotions can play in helping us kind of navigate the world. Some of the research that he's done involves people who've experienced some kind of traumatic brain injury, either a blow to the head or a tumor. And there's a very small subset of these folks who've had this happen in such a precise way that it left their intellectual and cognitive faculties intact, but destroyed their ability to feel emotions. So pre and post this experience, they would actually test the same on an intelligence test, but they lost the capacity to feel. And what he found was that their lives slowly unraveled and in part because they simply couldn't make decisions. You know, he tells this quite moving story of a patient he's interviewing who's trying to determine something like when to schedule his next appointment. And he goes through this immense decision tree, and Damasio describes it in a period of a couple of paragraphs. And this patient essentially says, well, if I schedule my appointment for Tuesday, then I can go pick up my dry cleaning, but then I'm going to not be able to get my daughter. It's blah, 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 blah. And what emerges from this is the recognition that emotions are this very, very powerful biasing system. The patient who Damasio was describing and others who he described, the problem they were encountering is that our cognitive systems are just too slow. They operate in parallel. They take a piece of data, parse it, move on to the next piece of data, parse it. It's really slow. The value of emotions is that everything's happening serially. It's happening one after another. What's happening in our emotional systems is everything's happening in parallel. It's all happening at once. We take in a ton of data and we have this immediate response to it. And that allows us to say, oh, I'm going to make my next appointment on Thursday, as opposed to going through this immense decision tree. Now, the dilemma, of course, is that under certain circumstances, we're easily misled. There's another neuroscientist, a guy at New York University named Joseph Ledoux. He calls emotions a quick and dirty signal. His work shows that the neural circuits that process um, emotions like fear literally operate twice as fast as the neural circuits that process cognitions. And so the value is, oh, we're going to get a sudden wave of data at our disposal. We're going to process it. And we're going to, Bob, the point you made earlier, we're going to react as opposed to respond. We're going to have an, an emotional reaction. And that's really useful. It allows us to make a quick decision. It primes us for action. And yet under a number of circumstances, we were actually taking this neural apparatus that evolved 200,000 years ago and applying it to a radically different environment. And so there are lots of circumstances that we encounter today where we experience a threat response, you know, a fight, flight, or freeze response, which is really unhelpful in that particular environment. You know, we evolved that response because our brains basically made a bet that it's going to be safer to have this really powerful wave 
of emotion in response to this situation and to treat it like a threat that will guarantee our survival. And, you know, 200,000 years ago, you can envision all sorts of circumstances under which that was very true, literally true for our distant ancestors. And yet we're applying that today in a host of circumstances where it's not literally true. We do not face a literal threat. We face a perceived threat. And so we have to be able to slow down and respond as opposed to reacting. A number of the practices that we were talking about earlier, getting a good night's sleep, mindfulness, exercise, really one of the fundamental purposes of all of those practices is to, is to just allow us to slow down when we feel this impulse to hurry. I've got to rush. I feel a strong energy. So something's got to happen. This person is getting in my way. And really none of that is true. It's just this sort of illusion. And so while stipulating emotions are absolutely necessary to our effective functioning, and we do need them in the workplace. We also need to figure out how do we regulate them. If we just allow them to kind of govern our choices, our behavior, our interactions, we will reliably get off course. And a problem that I think we experience today, Meredith, is connected to what you mentioned, like this idea of like, well, let's bring the whole self to work. That's an understandable impulse when we think about the way a lot of workplaces were at some point in the past where we were asked to pretend that we weren't feeling. You know, we were asked to pretend that we were able to leave our emotions at the door, which is absurd. You know, you still carry your emotions in with you. You're just not allowed to express them in any way. Well, that's a recipe for insanity. So I think it's quite fruitful that we've recognized, look, the practices and the sort of behavioral norms that governed a lot of workplaces in the past actually run quite contrary to, to the way human beings work. That said, it's not as if like just the sort of untrammeled expression of everything we're thinking and feeling is going to be helpful to anybody, including ourselves. And I think that's actually become quite problematic in recent years. In the piece that you mentioned, Meredith, something I talk about is what I call the privileging of the subjective emotional experience. I'm having my feelings and they're justified because they're feelings. And however I choose to express them is fair. And if in fact, I believe that your behavior is causing my feelings and I'm unhappy. You have to change. It's your obligation. Well, that's the logic of a child. We do ourselves a disservice when we assume that the helpful, helpful process of bringing our fuller selves to work actually means that we get to just express ourselves in a totally unregulated way. Yeah, I find it's interesting in how many of these conversations you go back to the ancestral environment and you talk about we evolved. You know, you mentioned a second ago the flight fight or freeze. I never heard the third one, but yeah, those, those are the three and that we evolved in a certain set of circumstances to survive on the savanna and not get eaten by lions or whatnot. And now we find ourselves in the modern built world, which has changed dramatically just in mine and yours lifetime, just in the last 10 years, it's changed dramatically. And it turns out that the modern world is a horrible mismatch for the ancestral environment in which the human animal evolved. And so it does seem like so many of these practices are ways of trying to bridge that gap. And you spoke earlier about some of your clients struggling with anxiety. It made me think about it, an essay that I saw on your site where you were talking about the relationship between actual safety and our sense of certainty and control. And you were talking about like, is that just sort of a mismatch that our anxious brain in the built environment wants to think that we can predict the future and create safety but in reality, we're still kind of facing a savanna-like world where any one of us can be eaten at any time, you know? <laughs> right. right. And we perceive it that way. My thinking about this has been influenced a lot by a guy. He's an evolutionary psychiatrist. His name is Randolph Ness. And his recent book is called Good Reasons for Bad Feelings. 
which I just love. And I think that highlights the fact that like evolution is not solved for our happiness. Evolution is solved for our ability to sort of adapt to the environment and be genetically successful. And so I think we confound ourselves when we think I'm not happy, I'm anxious or upset or something like it shouldn't be that way. Well, you know, as Randolph Ness's work makes really clear, there are lots of good reasons for bad feelings. And it's not about trying to stomp those bad feelings out, but figuring out what to do with them, which goes back to this idea of stepping out of our immediate emotional experience to be able to hold it at a bit of a distance and then say, you know, first, is this serving me right now? If so, how? If not, what can I do about that? I make a semantic distinction in my work between emotion suppression and emotion regulation. Emotion suppression is basically pretending I'm not having the feeling that I'm having. And we can do that for brief periods of time, but it tends to be counterproductive. The feeling that we're trying to suppress, the feeling that we're pretending we're not having actually tends to come roaring back even stronger. So emotion suppression is rarely, if ever, useful and not useful on a sustained basis. Emotion regulation is absolutely necessary. Aaron, it's very much connected to this idea of like evolving out of the warrior mindset and adopting the sage mindset. It's a recognition that, oh, this emotional fire, this fuel that's kind of like, you know, leading me to battle may be leading me off a cliff. Absolutely. You have in your class about self-coaching, there's an entire session about happiness. How should we think about the role of happiness in our life? Because there are so many things that influence our notion of happiness, and it feels very mercurial, very fleeting. Is happiness actually an important part of developing as a human being? I think so. And yet I also want to note another challenge with the English language is specifically related to the term happiness. My interest in the concept of happiness is very much connected to the positive psychology movement, which really goes back to the 1980s and work by Martin Seligman, but kind of specifically with regard to happiness sort of took off about 15 years ago and resulted in a kind of a mischaracterization of positive psychology as like happiness studies, like it's all about rainbows and puppy dogs and that sort of thing. And I think the fundamental misreading there is that what the positive psychologists are aiming at is not happiness in the way that we often think of it in English as a form of fleeting pleasure. What they're really aiming at is by a word that they took from the ancient Greek, eudaimonia, the highest human aim, a sense of deep meaning and fulfillment. And you know, we might say, well, why aren't we talking about eudaimonia? Well, because it's too abstract and obscure. It's not that helpful. You might say, well, why aren't we talking about flourishing? In fact, one of Martin Seligman's more recent books was titled Flourishing, but I don't think it's sold as well. So I think there's something useful about the concept of happiness simply because it's readily understandable. I also, in my class, like talking about happiness because it forms a bookend to a subsequent session on unhappiness, which I think is equally important and not something that we should seek to avoid, but rather something we should seek to learn from. There's a lot of interesting research about associations between people who report higher levels of subjective well-being and various life outcomes. They, in general, earn more, have more successful careers, live longer, are healthier when they do get sick, they're not sick for as long. Now, we can't necessarily say what direction does the arrow of causation run. You know, are people who are just naturally happier, you know, go on to accomplish these more effective things in life or are people happy because they're more effective at life? We don't know. And the research definitely doesn't give us a definitive conclusion. However, when I'm talking with MBAs, I say, look, we can't wait for the PhDs to figure this out. It'll be a missed opportunity for us <laughs> to just live our lives more effectively. So let's take some inspiration from the research and try to figure out how can we become 
a little bit more happy? Can we pursue some activities? And a really interesting dimension to the research is the idea that the single greatest lever with regard to our ability to influence our reported state of subjective well-being lies not with these large-scale life circumstances. There is absolutely a relationship between well-being and income, and it's not the case that that's irrelevant. But the relationship between you know material wealth and happiness is still really complicated and very poorly understood. And anybody who tells you that they understand it is lying because we don't really have a firm handle on that. But in general, like large life circumstances have for most people, a smaller impact on our reported levels of subjective well-being. And even if they do have a big impact on our particular level of well-being as an individual, they're hard to execute. You can't just snap your fingers and make it happen. Some really interesting research is around the small-scale intentional activities that we can commit to to influence our subjective well-being. So things like a gratitude journal. We were talking earlier about how, hey, if it becomes onerous, you should give it up. I don't want that to sound like I am down on gratitude journals. I'm actually very big on the idea of these sort of small-scale interventions in our daily lives that reliably, across the research, have a significant impact on people's reported well-being. Now, that doesn't mean that's true for everybody, and there's a big misunderstanding in sort of popular consciousness as this work became more well-known, you know, about 10, 15 years ago, there was a pie chart that got some prominent attention, this idea that subjective well-being, uh, 40% of it derives from these small-scale intentional activities, 10% derives from large-scale life experience and life circumstances, and 50% derives from our, a genetic set point. Well, that doesn't apply to every individual. Anyone who's interpreting that way is really doing a fundamental misreading of the research. It doesn't work that way. Again, the theme in our conversation today is just how different we all are and how cautious we have to be when drawing any implications from any of this research for our lives as individuals. All that said, going back to the way I talk about this with students, we can't wait for all of the science to become fully settled. So let's experiment responsibly. Let's make some responsible experiments and figure out if there are ways that we can address our happiness, address our state of subjective well-being with the hope that that might actually contribute to some of those outcomes that I cited earlier, but also recognize that we still don't know. We still don't know which way the arrow of causation runs. This is such great insight and so much to think on. Thank you so much for being here. One of the things we like to do is we like to ask kind of complicated question to our guests as the last question. So here goes. What would your 25-year-old self give you advice on today? Trust yourself more. I think at 25, I think I doubted myself a lot more. I think I was a lot more hesitant. I think I was a lot more scared and cautious than I needed to be. I learned, I would say probably about 15 years ago, so at 40, much later than at 25, I would say I learned that an impulse to avoid doing something is actually a reason to do it. And at 25, I was like, oh, I, that, that makes me feel anxious or I, I don't want to do that. And I would follow that impulse. After 15 years of screwing things up, I think I realized, oh, the impulse to avoid it may be a reason to try. So I think I was a lot more cautious and hesitant than I needed to be, which certainly would not have meant that I would have gotten it all right. But I think related to that is I was so worried about getting it wrong that it kept me from trying. And interestingly, I see a parallel in how I work. If I think back to my early days as a coach, it's just inevitable 
that you ask a question and then immediately you think, oh, that was a stupid question. I, I could have asked a better way to you know, do that. And then in my early days, I'd get so hung up about, oh, I asked a stupid question. I could have asked a better question that I'd actually lose track of what the person was saying. I'd be just so in my head. So, I mean, I am a better coach in the sense that I think I ask fewer stupid questions, but I'm probably, what really makes me a better coach today is that I just don't worry if I ask a stupid question. You know, I like, oh, that was a stupid question. And I let it go. And I pay attention to the person I'm working with as opposed to getting caught up in my own head and anxiety about myself. And I recognize, okay, yeah, I could learn from that, file it away, but another opportunity will come along in just a few minutes. So first trust myself, but then also when I ask a stupid question or do anything stupid, like, you know, acknowledge it. It's not if I don't hold myself accountable, but I also have learned to let a lot of stuff go. Sounds very sage-like and less warrior-like. <laughs> I'm trying, Aaron, I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> Ed, where can people learn more about you and your work? So I am at edbatista.com, E-D-B as in boy, A-T-I-S-T-A.com. I'm an inveterate blogger. I started blogging in 2004. I am still using the same wonderful old content management system that I latched onto back then, but I'm not a regular poster. I go through periods of intense productivity and I'll write a couple of essays and then I may go through a period of weeks where I'm a little less active. I am on Twitter, which I try to have fun with. I don't take Twitter very seriously. Occasionally I'll talk about a new piece I've written. I often talk about my dog Buster, who did not interrupt us today. I was delighted to, to observe. But if you want to follow me on Twitter, also at Ed Batista, be prepared to hear a lot about Buster. Fantastic, Ed. Thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. So I really liked how Ed framed emotion because I think emotion is often denigrated as not very reliable and it's not how we want to really react or interact with other people. Our conversations are driven by emotion, but I like what he said. Emotion can be a tool for decision-making and that's not a bad thing. It can just help us decide very quickly. And he said this quote that you pointed out, Bob, emotions are data, which means they have both signal and noise. I'm curious how the two of you receive that information and if that resonated with how you operate in your career and your your life. Well, I think the one thing to add to that was, you know, he talked about emotion suppression and emotion regulation, right? And I think we're kind of trained, like he was saying, we're trained to go to work and shut off our emotions, right? But that doesn't do anybody any good. And I think in this time where our work is maybe our garage or our extra bedroom or our kitchen table, how are you supposed to just move locations from your home in which you live your life and suppress yeah. those emotions? Like it's virtually impossible, right? And so I think what I really liked about this was him talking about emotion regulation and how if we look at emotion regulation, we can kind of evolve out of that feeling of feeling like we have to suppress things, but just kind of regulate what we think and how we say things. So it just kind of changed my perspective, to be honest. And it made me think like, oh, I think it's archaic to think of suppressing your emotions just because you go to work and just because you're doing a job. I think it should actually be quite the opposite and it can actually be really fruitful. Yeah, one of the themes that I found runs through a lot of his work, but also runs through a lot of our conversations and the whole mindfulness practice that we're kind of seeing in the United States and elsewhere right now is this idea of how do you 
come to manage your emotions, as you were pointing out there, Meredith. And I've been uh, going back through Marcus Aurelius's meditations lately, and he talks about this idea of the command center. And it is sort of something I'm not sure we all think about as conscious as we could, but there is a part of yourself that even when you're most upset, even when you're crying or yelling or something, often in those moments, there's a piece of yourself that's looking at that and sort of saying, look at what you're doing right now. Often there's some piece outside your emotional experience that's watching what's going on. And it seems to me like this transition from warrior to sage, the difference between a mentor and a coach, the purpose of mindfulness and being able to just observe your emotions without feeling like you have to do something with them, that it's all of a part of trying to figure out how to stop being victimized by your emotions. It's not that they're not useful data or they're not indicative of something, but you don't have to be victimized by them. And so in my practices around this area lately, I've just been thinking about oh, I'm doing these things because that's how I'm building the strength of my command center because it's my command center that's going to help to balance this monkey mind that I've got. And the monkey mind is big and strong and powerful and I have to find some way to keep it from destroying me. And in order to do that, I have to build up this other muscle, which is I think what he was getting to with this like the warrior to sage transition because the sage becomes much more observational, right? And does not feel like it has to instantly react to everything. Because judgment itself is an emotion, right? Yeah, the warrior sage metaphor, those archetypes from Carl Jung really resonated with me. And and I definitely see the connection with emotion because my younger days, especially in my career, I thought with a warrior mindset of, you know, it's a zero-sum game. I want to be right. I want to be the most informed person in the room. I'm a bit of a type A person and I want to do well. It serves you to a certain degree, and then it holds you back because that mindset creates the fertile ground for a lot of really negative emotion. And then that negative emotion reshapes your behavior in a really negative way where if things don't go your way, you know, get upset, don't respond in a very rational way, tend to be a lot more territorial, makes it harder to collaborate, and then that impedes your success. So, Conversely, in his blog post, and he talked about this in our conversation too, the, the sage is someone who, t- they don't take themselves seriously. The more they know, the more they realize they don't know that much. And having that sort of like release, which reminded me of Oliver Berkman in that conversation we had with him about this control mentality that we have with life, with time, with productivity, that productivity and hustle culture is all about that warrior mindset. And what Oliver Berkman and Ed were both talking about is releasing that, letting go, shifting towards that sage perspective where you don't have to have all the answers and you don't have to constantly create that negative emotion in your life. It seems like that whole control mindset, I have to get all this stuff done, the whole warrior mindset, it's so egoistic. You know, it's me, 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 me. It's about what I want to do. I'm going to go make this dent in the universe or do whatever it is I'm going to do. And to his point, that has a time and a place. But that is certainly not a sustainable way to go through life, or at least it's not for most people. I have to say, before I read his work and before I looked into his Stanford class, I didn't realize that 
self-coaching wasn't solitary. And so I liked that he called that out. And I like that he has, you know, all of this information that you can go and dive in on because for me, I think of self and self-coaching as something that I have to do and it's on me and nobody else is involved. And I really like how he spun that around and was like, nope, it's kind of the opposite of a solitary experience. You have kind of your board of advisors and you have your people that you want to go out and trust and use and leverage and you find out how they are going to help you. And so, I don't know, I just, I learned something new. Well, you had that great definition of coaching is, you know, coaching is about building the relationship so that you amass enough trust that you can ask the hard questions. And I particularly liked how he distinguished between coaching and mentoring. Because I occasionally have people ask me to coach and I'm like, there's no chance I'm going to coach you because it's not what I'm set up for. But I'm happy to mentor you, which is I can tell you about situations I've faced and maybe you know share with you some of my experiences. But mentoring is a completely different thing from coaching. And you know when he phrased coaching as the trust to be able to ask the hard questions, then I sort of got the self-coaching as a social activity because I, I can now quickly identify a handful of people in my life that I have that kind of relationship with and I could push them and they could push me. What I haven't done is formally kind of said with them, hey, would you like to go into this coaching modality with me for a period of time and sort of like directly approaching the conversations that way? Because I suspect that if you went in to the occasional meeting with them saying, no, we're here to kind of push each other, that it would change the tenor of the normal conversation. It kind of resets some of the social expectations, but I bet it could be unbelievably useful and probably profound. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with you. I also think it's just really nice that he helped define it. I think in this day and age, there's a lot of talk about coaching. You know, you can have a performance coach, you can have a health coach, you can have, I mean, any kind of coach out there is possible. And I just, I really liked that he defined it and he defined the difference between coach and mentor, because I think that's something that people feel are a little murky right now. So I'm glad he clarified that, at least for me. I like when he said, help is helpful when it's asked for. That is, that, that, yeah, is, yeah. Yes. that is a really, really important point. I think, you know, so many of us, when we hear people describe their problems and we want to go into problem solving mode, I'll speak for myself. This is my default mode is how can I help? And sometimes that's good, but sometimes it's just annoying. It's, it can come across as condescension and just not productive. So Curious how you approach helping and receiving help. I think I've gotten better just in recent years of asking people, do you want my help? Like just try to be much more deliberate. I do it sometimes with my kids, with my wife, with coworkers. Just try to clarify at the beginning, do you just need to blow off some steam and you need me to listen, which is totally fine? Or are you actually looking for some input and you want my help? And I can do that too. But let's be clear about you know what mode we're in before we go too much further, because if we have a mismatch, it's going to be super frustrating for both of us. I love that you just said that. And that's something that I'm going to practice because I don't do that. I'm just like, how can I help? And then I go into fix mode. And sometimes I get called out for, I just want to complain about something, or I just want to share something with you. And so I think you're right. I think asking up front is the way to do it. And it can help with tension or miscommunication in the future. And Ed had a lot of great advice about the practices, the habits, like forming the habits that are going to help us get closer to happiness, which he then tore down and said this ancient Greek word of eudaimonia, which maybe we could talk about today in the modern world as well-being. He talked about meditation and journaling and exercise, things we all know very well. But 
putting those practices into place is tricky. Yeah, no, you just have to invest the time. There's no easy way around it. You know, he mentioned Brad Stahlberg a couple of times, and Brad just recently published a piece in Outside Magazine. And in that, he talked about, you know, everybody just wants to reach for the M&Ms when they get hungry. Nobody wants to reach for the brown rice, you know, but the reality is you kind of got to do the work and you have to realize that doing the work is going to help you long term. But it's definitely easier to sit on the couch than to go do the run. But I can guarantee you, you're going to feel better after the run than you will after sitting on the couch. And I don't know where that inner motivation comes from. I don't know how to convince people to do that. If you have raised the bar so high that you're dreading engaging in the activity, then you need to see if you can lower the bar a little bit so that it doesn't become intimidating or something you just don't want to do. Like, what's the bare minimum? You know, maybe I can't write a whole page in a journal, but maybe I can write two sentences. Okay, we'll just write the two sentences. Try again tomorrow. Yeah, I love that. Starting with what's small and simple. Yeah. You know, one last thing that I really took away that I really liked is when he talked about the concept of a sage, because that's a really interesting label that starts getting applied to you when you start getting gray hair. And it's not a label I've been particularly comfortable with, but I get that vibe when people sometimes refer to me as Yoda or something. It doesn't settle well with me. But I, I like the way that he talked about how the sage is someone who is guiding others, who is teaching, and then is living by their principles. That actually seems like a really positive framing and something that I could kind of personally embrace and live with and be happy with. And those are all things that I'm trying to do actively. So it was, it was nice to be able to identify an archetype in a positive way and say, yeah, that is kind of where I've moved to. And I've at least tried to move away from my warrior impulse, which was certainly the thing that fueled me through the vast majority of my career. It is a much more gratifying and productive and happy place to be kind of beyond that warrior thing in someplace else. Until he kind of described how he was thinking about a sage, I'm not sure I was too comfortable thinking of myself having moved into more of that space. It's a great reference point and great visual of start heading in this direction towards sage thinking. Just to close, I do think it's interesting on the self-coaching thing that I feel like that's what we're doing with this show. Like the three of us are able to kind of call each other out a little bit. Maybe not so much something that we record and release, but I think we are able to push each other a little bit, give each other feedback. And of course, we're engaged in these discussions that are not necessarily easy things. Like you wouldn't necessarily set out to read all these books and you wouldn't necessarily try to have these thoughts and process all this stuff. Be a lot easier just to eat the M&Ms and sit on the couch all day. But because we've come together and created some accountability around the show, it forces all of us to put in the extra effort, which from what I can tell, is pretty gratifying for all three of us and hopefully for some other people on the other side of the mic. Reconsidering is created by Aaron Walter, Bob Baxley, and me, Meredith Black, with editing help from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. Original music for the show was written and performed by Kimo Meraki. You'll find a full transcript of this episode and all the links mentioned at reconsidering.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player to catch future episodes and discover the treasures of the Reconsidering Library. To support the show, we'd be ever so grateful if you'd leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Your review will help others discover the show. And life, like the seasons, is ever-changing, but satisfaction can be found every day when we tune in. Until next time.